Welcome to the St. Paul's Episcopal Church podcast. Here, we will share our thoughts, voices, and prayers. St. Paul's is a progressive community of faith with ancient roots. You can find out more about St. Paul's at their website, stpauls.dioup.org, or find us on Facebook. If you would like to share your words on this podcast, send us a message. May God's peace be with you today and always. In today's podcast, Charlie West reflects on this Sunday's readings, Psalm 139, 1 through 6, and 13 through 18, Book 1 of Samuel, Chapter 3, verses 1 through 10 and 11 through 20, Book 1 Corinthians, Chapter 6, 12 through 20, and John, Chapter 1, verses 43 through 51. You can read along in Charlie's blog, Words Twice a Week, at wordstwiceaweek.blogspot.com. Words Twice a Week, one fourteen. Uh, words Twice a Week on Thursday is a set of introductory thoughts on the scripture lessons for the coming Sunday. They're presented as a bulleted list, and I use this sound to uh, mark each bullet point and the start of a new thought. This probably works best if you've had a chance to read over the lessons or at least have them at hand to scan as we go along. And this Sunday, uh, we'll be looking at Psalm 139, 1 to 6, 13 to 18, which leaves out the best part of the psalm, in my humble opinion. But uh, 1 Samuel 3, verses 1 to 10 and 11 to 20. I know that's just 1 to 20. Okay. Um, 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 20, and John 1, 43 to 51. Um, yeah. Okay, Psalm 139, 1 to 6, and 13 to 18. As I said, verses um, 7 to 12 are parts of the psalm that I like best. I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. That just sings for me. God knows us and about us from before our beginning to after our end. Um, Is this comforting or troubling? The psalmist presents God as loving and caring, not threatening. Can psalm like this doesn't leave much room for our own choice? One writer suggests that this psalm is about God's presence, participation, to use terms that I'm big on right now. This could be a stewardship word. Um, One writer suggests this psalm is about God's presence, participation in our lives and in all creation, more than about choice. What do you think?
um, preaching through the Christian year suggests that this might be the response of someone who has been falsely accused of something. And I could maybe see that as God is my witness. God has insight, verses 1 to 6, oversight, verses 7 to 12, and foresight, 13 to 18. Nice. The psalm is intensely personal. It has I, me, or my at least once in each verse. Verses 13 to 18, like with the creation last week, God is, was intentional about each of us. None of us are just random. How do we think about this together with evolution? Just how detailed, explicit is God's intention for each of us? How do you think or talk about that? First Samuel 3, 1 to 10, and then um, additional lesson 11 to 20. Another story where everything turns on the response of a youngster. Note that Samuel is young, fresh, innocent. Eli is old, losing his sight um, physically, figuratively, spiritually, tainted by his son's behavior. Elkanah had two wives that introduce issues we usually don't have to think about. One with children, the other without. Note the, that when Hannah does have one child, she gives him to God. Is it harder or easier to give away an only item or child? Or one of many? Note that Samuel is left behind when Hannah and Elkanah head home, kind of like Jesus stayed behind when his family went to the temple. It says the voice of God was rare, either directly or in dreams. How do we think of God speaking today? And is it rare or common? Have you ever had the sense that God was calling you, speaking to you? If so, what was it like? Um, this is from Frederick Beekner. God speaks to us through our lives. We often too easily say, something speaks anyway, spells out some sort of godly or God-forsaken meaning to us through the alphabet of our years, but often it takes many years and many further spellings out before we start to glimpse or think we do a little of what that meaning is. Even when we glimpse it only dimly, like the first trace of dawn on the rim of night, and even then, it is a meaning that we cannot fix and be sure of once and for all because it is always incarnate meaning and thus as alive and changing as we are ourselves alive and changing. On the third time God calls Samuel, Eli finally realizes what is going on and coaches Samuel and what to do. Verse 11 to 20, then God tells Samuel that Eli's line will not continue. Does God really punish? It's a big word for a little boy. Note that in the morning, Eli does call Samuel and asks what God said. An awkward moment for Samuel. Which encounter, God or Eli, would be more intimidating? Note that the end of Eli's line marks the delegitimation 
of the primary priestly family symbol system on which Israel has relied. Note how Eli responds. How would we? So an ending and a new beginning with Samuel, who God does not let any of his words fall to the ground. 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 20. Anything, food, sex, Paul takes things, slogans. Some of the folks at Corinth are saying, which they indeed may have learned from Paul himself, and corrects their understanding of him. Are there slogans today, either religious or political, that get worked out or understood in different ways and sometimes cause problems? Some of the Corinthians came from the senior side of life, but they have been washed, sanctified, and justified. How comfortable are we with that language? You've been cleaned up, Paul says. Now don't get dirty again. How much do we feel we need to be washed, sanctified, justified? The body and the spirit are intertwined, not set against each other, not unrelated. How does this work out in your life? One writer quotes Ernst Casemine. I read a couple of his books in seminary, but that was long, long ago. Saying that the body is the peace of the world which we are and for which we bear responsibility. Eco-theologians like Thomas Berry would maybe suggest that our body is that piece of the world in which creation becomes self-aware and self-reflective. Is this unique to humans? Some would say yes. Others, no. And finally, the corporate nature of Christian human existence. If one of us goes astray, all are hurt. If one of us is kept from finding their full potential, we all suffer. A good thing to keep in mind as we work to move forward as a country, as a people. Yes, I have synthetic racism in mind and various cultural, social, economic, political issues. And then John 1, 43 to 51, Jesus calls Philip. Philip brings Nathaniel. Jesus goes to Galilee and meets Philip. Just bumped into him? Was looking for him? Bumped into a variety of others, but it didn't go anywhere? Were you there? Did Jesus bump into you? Philip finds Nathaniel. So not the Billy Graham scene from last week. This is more like each one bring one. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Speaking of slogans, can anything good come from blank? Fill in the blank. In your experience, how does that blank get filled in? Republican, Democratic, Russia, China, the rich, the poor, indigenous, immigrant, White people, people of color. It says Nathaniel wasn't deceitful, was on the spectrum. And John, Jesus just knows things about people, like God knows us. And again, is that comforting, intimidating? Jesus calls Philip. Philip invites Nathaniel. 
but Jesus calls Nathaniel into discipleship. We might invite people to church, but they become disciples when they encounter Jesus. How did that happen for you? Is that something that we keep in mind? Does it have to do with the why of the what, how, why that Marna has encouraged us to think about? We have found the one. How would we identify or describe Jesus to Nathaniel? question in John is almost always about whether a person accepts Jesus or not. Nathaniel clearly does. And Jesus says he will see angels going up and coming down, i.e. Jacob's ladder. Do we think of Jesus being Jacob's ladder or the place where Jacob's ladder rests? Or is there any difference? And then a little bit from Fred Craddock here. The biblical word central to the season of Epiphany is revelation, for this is the time to celebrate the revealing of the Son of God. But the companion word to revelation is witness, for revelation in the biblical sense is never open and obvious to everyone, interested or not, believer or not. There is always a kind of radiant obscurity. A concealing that requires faith to grasp the revealing. One is not permitted a controlled, managed, guaranteed, no-risk response to Jesus. Those, therefore, who have beheld the glory become flesh cannot prove, but they can witness. And uh, let the preacher notice that witnessing invites, it does not argue or coerce, and certainly does not cartoon or discredit Nathaniel's initial doubt. Faith sickens and dies in an atmosphere where doubt is laughed at. And those of us who regularly evaluate others by place of origin, residence, family, education, and station, to name a few, should not find Nathaniel's response unusual. And finally, Nathaniel's response seems too big for an individual. As a true Israelite, perhaps he is meant to represent all of Israel. Craddock notes that Nathaniel is not listed as a disciple in any of the Gospels or Acts lists. That's what I got for now.